prior to being 20 years old, I, I, I didn't really like reading books. In fact, I hate reading books. People are surprised by that because when you come around my house now, there are books everywhere. But prior to 20, books weren't exactly a big thing. The only book I'd read cover to cover was The Adventures of He-Man. That was a real quality. And that was because most of it was, was pictures and it had a, only a few words, but the pictures were pretty cool. So I thought, yeah, we'll have a bit of that bad boy. And so, but apart from that, I wasn't really into reading. But my specialist topic was both computer games and films. I loved films. So I grew up on visual, visual films, and that's really how I spent my first 20 years of my life. And one of my favorite films is Saving Private Ryan. Has anybody seen it? All right, good. There's a few people seen it. Basically, not a, not a complicated storyline. Private Ryan has lost all his brothers and sisters in the war. So the president has written to his mum and written to the army to say, we need to find Private Ryan. So a group of guys from the army go and find him. And it is a very cool movie. The first time I watched it, I was with my wife, Emma. And she actually ran out after about two minutes because she didn't like all the fighting. It's like, what did you expect? You know, it's a war film. But anyway, so I was there by myself as Larry Nomates, watching the film for the rest of the days by myself. But I enjoyed it nonetheless. And one of my favorite bits in the film is when they start using the sticky bombs. And I just thought that was ingenious. This idea of using a sticky bomb to kill and blow up tanks. And I'd never heard of it or seen it before. All they do is basically they take off a sock or anything else they can find. They take off the sock. They put tar all around the sock. And then they put their grenades and all the, the explosives in the sock. And then as the tank comes, which is obviously huge, they run up with their sock. They slap it into the side of the tank ignite the stuff, run off, and then boom, the tank explodes. And I just thought, that is so, so clever. Because you can't shoot a tank, it'll just look at you as if to say, I'm embarrassed. You can't talk a tank into stopping. You've got to blow this bad boy up. And so these sticky bombs would do exactly that. They'd fill them up, run over to the tank, slap it on, boom, gone tank. I love that. And over the last few weeks here at Sovereign Grace Church, we have been looking and reviewing first things first. And we really wanted to talk about why is it so important that here in this local church, we keep the gospel central. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul takes time, knowing that he is about to die, knowing that he is about to be effectively executed for the faith, he wants to take time to talk to Timothy, to explain to Timothy that which is of most importance, the gospel. He says to Timothy, Timothy, guard the good deposit. Timothy, I am soon going to die, but follow the good words that I've entrusted to you. Guard it, know it, keep it. Never move on from the gospel, Timothy, but keep it tight and keep it bold. Keep it clear. Keep it the main thing. And really, over the last three weeks, we've spent time looking at why. Why is Paul so lathered up about keeping the gospel central? Why is he so lathered up about ensuring that both Timothy and the local churches he leads keep the gospel so much the main thing? Well, in week one, we looked at the first reason. The first reason why we need to keep first things first is because as we do that, we're able to enjoy grace and detect legalism. We all have a tendency towards legalism. It's the way we live. We have a tendency to forget that I am justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and start to think we're justified by all those things plus the little things I do. The Bible reading, the praying, the evangelism. And we try and smuggle in our works. But when we go back to the gospel and we live in light of the gospel, we don't try and smuggle it in anymore because we live daily amazed that Jesus has paid it all. He is the grounds on which I can approach the throne of grace. He is the grounds of my forgiveness and my acceptance. 
So we have to keep first things first for that reason. It helps us to enjoy grace and to take legalism. In week two then, we looked at the second reason, which is we need to keep the gospel the main thing because when we do, the gospel functions in our hearts and minds and changes lives. It changes lives, doesn't it? It changes marriages. It changes parenting. It changes our friendships, our relationships. It changes the way we see things. It changes the way we feel about things. When the gospel functions, everything changes. But when we forget the gospel, everything changes again and not for the better. Well, this week we're looking at the third reason. The third and final reason in this series as to why I believe it's so important that we keep first things first. And it's this. We need to keep first things first because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We must keep the gospel central, not only because when we know it, it enables us to detect legalism and enjoy grace, not only because as we apply it, it changes lives. We need to keep the gospel central because as we proclaim it, as we tell of it, people's lives are blown up in a moment. See, people's hearts are far more fortified than a World War II tank. They're dead in their transgressions and sins. No one is searching for God. No one wants God. They've all rebelled against him and rejected him. So how on earth, for all these people that pass this place, even on a Sunday, heading off to the beach or the seaside or going to play their games, how on earth are they going to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the glories of Calvary that changes lives. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel really is the dynamis, the dynamite of God. The Greek word dunamis, which is obviously translated in this case as power, is also the root word for dynamite. And so what Paul is helping to see is that gospel which you have in your lives, that gospel which you carry in your hearts, that is equated to the power of God. It is like a sticky bomb that when you run up to people and attach it to their heads and their hearts, you just never know when that thing might go off. Boom! And a life is changed. There are so many churches then try and change up the gospel try and make it less offensive. They try and make it more palatable for different people. You know, that's crazy. That's like taking bits out of the bomb. And then we wonder, why is it not going off? Well, because it needs all the bits in there. It has to be filled with truth for it to go off. The power is in the gospel, and so we can't start changing the gospel. Sure, we can change our method. We can make our method more culturally acceptable. That's wise to do. We can make our method more culturally available to different people. That's wisdom. But we must never change the message itself. The message itself must remain the same. Christ and him crucified must remain the gospel message for as long as we live. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who will believe. And so that's why I've put it here as the third reason. I want us to examine and understand that the reason why we must, as Sovereign Grace Church, keep the gospel, the reason why we must guard it and hold it, is because in proclamation... The only way to win people's hearts is not through arguing them in. It's not even through being nice to them so that they might see. No, it's the gospel. The gospel and the gospel alone is what changes lives. And today, today, with that in mind, I want us to look at Romans 10. Paul, in Romans 1 verse 16, having nailed the power of the gospel, then goes on in chapters 1 through 8 to really sing to us about the glories of the gospel, how it operates. How we're all guilty of cosmic treason, but how Jesus Christ in his grace came to pay the price for our cosmic treason so that we could have life and life in abundance. He's done that in chapters 1 through 8. 
And here in Romans 10, it's as if Paul pulls back. He slows the pace and he wants to talk to us instead about the gospel's reach, the gospel's charge, and the gospel's privilege. And so let's read together from verse 9. And we're going to read to the end of verse 15. I'm reading from the ESV. It goes like this. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, Paul in this section is talking about the gospel's reach, the gospel's charge, and the gospel's privilege. And let's begin where he starts with, indeed, the gospel's reach, which is really from verses 9 through to the end of verse 13. Paul has taken the time to already discuss with us about the gospel's power, but now he wants to help us see the reach of the gospel, the extent, the arm width of how powerful this gospel really is in helping people and changing people's lives. And what we quickly learn in these verses is the gospel contains the power to reach anyone. It has the power to change everyone's lives, anyone's lives. In verse 11, we read the word everyone. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You get the message? This is open to everyone. The gospel is wide in its power. There is no one outside of the grip, the grasp, the grip, the grasp, the grip of the gospel. There is no one outside of the range of allowing the gospel to change people's lives. Isn't it lovely? The gospel is not only accessible to everybody, it is designed as a powerful agency to change even the hardest heart. It's the dynamite of God that changes people's lives. You see, it's so easy if you're like me, to write people off. You ever done that? You ever been tempted to hang out on a tube station or, or to be going to work or there's a certain person at work that you just think, oh, you know what, there's no real point in me befriending them for the gospel because it just ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. You ever been tempted to do that? Maybe because of the way somebody looks? Maybe you're standing there and this guy comes in and he is so tatted up, it's unbelievable, he has piercings everywhere, he looks at you as if to say, I might kill you in a moment. And the instant reaction is, I'm not, I'm not going to bother. He's, he's probably so far away from God, there's no way this guy's going to become a Christian. Yeah, he looks a bit like Jesse. That's who I was thinking all the time. <laughs> or a guy on the tube that is all suited up, and he's got such a power suit on, and he looks so wealthy, and he's so busy on his phone, and so busy on his computer, that you think, that guy's unlikely to become a Christian. He's probably so engrossed in his world that, you know what, it's going to take me so long, I'm not sure it's going to happen. Or maybe because of somebody's nationality. You ever been tempted to walk away from a Muslim when they got the burqa on? Because you think, oh my gosh, 
No, they're, they're Muslim. They're never going to turn to Christ. You ever been tempted to leave them to it? Or just find somebody else who's just like you? Because deep down you think, I'm not sure they'll ever change. Or maybe because somebody's lifestyle. Maybe your neighbor leaves the house at 6 o'clock in the morning and he comes back in at 8 o'clock at night every day. And then when you see him, he's always smiling. He's playing with his kids and they're, they're going out in the cars and they've got all the stuff. And you just think, they're unlikely to become Christians. I mean, he's so busy. They play sports on a Sunday. They would never make it to church. Or you reach out to somebody and you find they, they look like they're married with kids, but they're not married with kids. And she lets on to you very quickly, you know what? We're never going to get married. Marriage sucks. Everybody I know that's got married gets divorced. We're just going to live together for the rest of our lives. Who, do you, who are you again and what do you do? I'm a pastor. Uh-huh. You ever been tempted to just think, oh, they're so unlikely to change. But you know what? I, I'm going to just find somebody else that seems interested. Somebody that's just like me. Somebody that's often morally good. And so we think, oh, they're so close. They would be so effective for the kingdom. <laughs> we limit the power of God in some type of joke way. Because Paul's message to us quite clearly in this thing is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is open to anyone, anybody who you utter the power of the gospel to. Do not think to yourself that that hasn't got the power to change their lives. Because it has. That was Paul's message. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is wide. It is wide in its reach. It is wide in its power. And Paul knew it only too well because he knew it because of his own life. I mean, think of Paul's own testimony. Paul was really the Osama bin Laden of the day. He was horrendous in the way he behaved. He was completely anti-Christian. The first time we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 7, he is standing watching people stoning Stephen, it says, with hearty agreement. And his only contribution is not only the smiles, not only the cheers, but he's just holding people's coats so that they can pick up the stones more effectively to kill the man. Paul was a horrible man. He killed Christians with zeal. He hated Christianity. He was the most unlikely person of the era to ever become a Christian. But his sinful heart was no match for the power of God. In grace and in wonder, in Acts chapter 9, we see Jesus himself encountering Paul. And what happens? Boom! The tank of his heart is overtaken. The tank of his heart is broken in a moment. This guy who is one minute smiling and laughing as Stephen is being stoned is now saying, you're my Lord. I want to follow you. That is the power of the gospel at work. Cornelius Plantinger says, human sin is stubborn. I love this. Check this. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Don't you love that? Human sin is stubborn. You interact with people and you think, they're never going to change. They're just so far from the kingdom of God. Who cares? Where the grace of God is at work and where the power of God is allowed to operate, when the gospel is proclaimed, even the hardest heart, as in the case with Paul, boom, can change in a moment. You see, folks, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want to encourage you, the gospel really does have the power to reach anyone. It has the power to reach anybody in your communities, any of your neighbors, any of your friends, any of your family members that you think, oh, they're just so far away. They're never going to come in. <laughs> you underestimating the power of God then. 
because he can do as he wills. He can break into a heart in just a moment. So if you're a Christian, please do not in your interactions with unbelievers just assume they're never going to come in. I won't even bother trying. They're just not going to come in. No. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And its reach is wide. If though you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then firstly, thanks for coming. I think it takes a lot of bottle when you're not a Christian to come to church and to think, you know, there's a lot of strange things that go on. And then you just think, what, who are they waving at? I mean, what is going on? There's so many things that happen in a church context. You just think, that is really strange. So thanks for coming. Thanks for being a part of what we're doing. But you need to know, as we gather around this Bible today, it's not just for Christians, it's for you. The Bible speaks to you, and it speaks to you very directly here as it proclaims to you the glories of the gospel. See, the gospel has the power and ability to change your life in the same way as it did Paul. The gospel has the ability to save your life in the same way it did man. See, the Bible's storyline starts with God. It helps us see that God made us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. We didn't just evolve out of some slush somewhere out of an amoeba. We were actually made and knitted together by God himself. And we were made to be with God and to worship God and to find our joy and our identity and our security in him. We were designed to reflect into the world and worship him. The thing is, we rejected him, me included. I thought, stuff it. I'm just going to live for the world. There's so many cool things happening in the world that I'm not into that. You know, so thanks, God. I think I believe in you. I'll let you know when I'm older because I'm just going to live for myself. We've all done that, haven't we? We all do it. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us in this room, whether we like it or not, has fallen well short of what God has commanded for us and what God wanted for us. We have rebelled against him. And the consequences of that is we are by nature then objects of wrath. God isn't smiling at you as an unbeliever. You're an object of his wrath. You've declared yourself to be an enemy with him. You've declared him to be useless as you face creation. I did it too. The Bible makes it clear that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. One day, you and I will go and stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives. What are we going to say? It's clear that everybody will stand there. I will as a Christian. You will as a non-Christian. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to stand there. And God will say, all right, Dave, um, seen all the stuff you do. It's not great. But then as he turns the page, you know what he'll find? He will find all my sins, all the different things that have taken place. He will find a stamp on each one written in the blood of Jesus Christ saying, paid for in full. Boom. Paid for in full. Boom. I stand here forgiven, accepted by God, not because of my behavior. I stand here forgiven because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth, not just to show the way, but to hang on a cross so that he could be the wrath bearer for us. He died on a cross as our propitiation. He died on a cross as our substitute. How is it? That I can stand before God on that last day and receive welcome home because of the blood of Jesus Christ in my place. What happens to you then? You also stand as a non-believer before the Lord. You rock up. Hello, I didn't believe you existed. Here I am. Yeah. Um, Here's all the sins you've done in your life. Uh Uh-huh. Unpaid for. 
Our sin has to be punished. Somebody has to pay for our sin. My sin's been paid for by Jesus Christ. Who's going to pay for your sin? You are. For all eternity, you will bear the wrath of God by yourself in the context of hell. It is horrendous. It is a horrible thought as you understand the gospel, as you understand the plight that unbelievers are in. But you know what? Here's the good news. Jesus Christ did indeed come after you. He came to die in your place. He came to give you life. He came so that you might find forgiveness and acceptance just like I did. How do you walk into that? Well, it says it right here, verse 9. See, salvation is indeed for you. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him for the dead, you will be saved. That is pretty cool. That is, that is life-changing stuff. You will be saved if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What is that? It's faith. It's faith that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross and then on the third day rose again. It's faith because it means that I believe you did that for me. You died the death that I deserved. You took on the wrath for my sin. That's the first part of what it means to be saved. It means to put faith in the Lord. What is the other bit then? Confessing Him, uh, confessing him as our King. Confessing Him as Lord. Uh, that's repentance. So we all have a tendency to live for ourselves. I do. I like living for myself. But when you become a Christian, it's understanding that I am no longer my king. I am no longer the one to whom I live for. Jesus Christ is my king. And it is turning from living from yourself to now living for him. You'll still make mistakes. I do all the time. But you will know that Jesus Christ died in your place for your mistakes. And as you bow the knee and seek to worship him as king, your lives will be transformed and changed. Folks, if you're a believer, do not write people off with the power of the gospel. But if you're an unbeliever, then I want to encourage you, today, get salvation. Today, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sin and follow him as king. And what will happen? Well, according to this, you will be saved. The gospel's power has a huge reach. But that's not all it has. Number two, the gospel's charge. We see this in verse 14, in the first part of verse 15. It reads like this. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Let's just stop there a moment. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow, that's amazing. What a message. But how are they to call on one whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in one that they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see what Paul's saying? He's basically saying, listen, this gospel is amazing. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is open to everyone. Who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell your neighbors? Who's going to tell the people that you work with? Who's going to tell your hairdresser? Who's going to tell the mothers and toddlers group that you happen to hang out in? Who's going to tell the family members that you sit there on a Sunday knowing that they are cut off from the grace of God? As we celebrate what God has done for us, you know they're not in. Who's going to tell them? The message very clearly here is you must. 
I must. We all must. For the power of God is the power, the, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation from all who believe. But who's going to tell them? Well, we must. In our schools, in our colleges, in our families, in our communities, in our neighbors. Brandishing the gospel that changes lives, we have to go and attach it. We have to go and tell people. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges we can face in that, and I know it's one of the greatest challenges I could face, is a tendency towards a Christian ghetto mentality. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying by one of them? And I know it's only too well because I've lived in it. You see, one of the joys of church life is that you get to do life together. You get to fellowship together. You get to carry one another's burdens. You get to pray together. You get to rejoice together, to weep together, to care for one another. It is such a great joy enjoying biblical fellowship within the confines of local church. It's vital and so important. But the problem comes when we start to get so closed off that we think that's all there is. And so as you review your week, you realize, you know, on a Monday morning or on a Sunday, I uh, get up in the morning and I, oh, what do I do? I hang out with Christians. I go and worship Jesus as a Christian. I hear a Christian message. I then seek to apply it with my Christian brothers and sisters over tea and coffee. And then I go hang out with my Christian family in the afternoon before seeing some Christian friends on a Sunday night. And then on Monday, I have a little day off because it's busy. Tuesday, uh, that's quite busy, but Tuesday night, that's good. I'll hang out with Christians because I can go to worship practice so we can sing Christian songs. Wednesday, we get a life group so we can apply Christian truths. Thursday, we might, we'll probably go to Mums to Mums and hang out with Christians. And then Friday, Friday, well, it's family night so we can introduce our family to Christians. Saturday, we'll probably have to serve in the church in some way so we can spend time helping the body as Christians. And then, oh, it's Sunday again. See what happens? It's a Christian ghetto. We sit and we wonder, why, why is this church not growing? Why is nobody getting saved? Because we're not telling anybody. We're not, we're not putting ourselves on the front line so often. And I know that's possible because I've done it. About four years ago, we were doing a teaching series at Christchurch called In It to Win It. In the world to win the world. The whole premise of what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians that he's become all things to all men so that by all means he may win some. And I was challenged and provoked as I was aware, I'm not all things to all men so that by all means I may win some. I, I spend all my time with Christians. And I had to radically change my life. We started to get involved in school stuff. I remember going to the school disco. So awkward and just horrendous. But, you know, there I am for Jesus. And you just think, I, I've got to try and get to know some people because I don't know anybody. And I joined a football club just to think, I've got to get to know some people that might swear at me. I need something. I, I, it's so important to engage with unbelievers. And yet I was aware I wasn't doing that. I was living in a ghetto And my friends, if we find that we're doing that in our lives, if we find that all of our time is spent with Christians, then there is something radically wrong. We've been called by God to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been called in John 20 by Jesus himself. As he looks the disciples in the eyes, he says, listen, just as you've seen me do, you do. Just as you've seen me, I now send you. Well, send you to do what, Jesus? What have you sent me? What did he do? Well, what an incredible model Jesus Christ was to us. One of the most wonderful titles that I think was given to Jesus is Jesus, friend of sinners. It's so meaningful and so incredible and so much is wrapped in it. Jesus did not live his life in a Christian ghetto. Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. That's the way he lived his life. 
See, Jesus didn't just stand on the sidelines of society shouting in orders about, you know what, you should believe or you should behave. He didn't do that. Jesus Christ didn't send in prescriptions with other people saying, okay, well, listen, I'm going to hang out here because I am, after all, God. So if the disciples, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a little rest. But if you want to go and have a go, you know, I'll, I'll be praying for you. He didn't do that. Jesus Christ didn't spend time keeping sinners at arm's length in case he's contaminated. In case, oh, they might affect me or my family, so I couldn't spend time with them. What? People outside are going to hell. They are cut off from God. Don't give me, they might contaminate my family. Maybe we need to teach our families and get out in there and start telling people about Jesus. Because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And nobody modeled that better than Jesus himself. Jesus is Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spins the galaxies, took on flesh, was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable, and then lived his life as a friend of sinners. He spent time with unbelievers, full of grace, full of truth, full of compassion. He engaged with sinners all the time. Whenever you see him, that's what he's doing, isn't it? If he's not with his disciples, he's in crowds, or he's at weddings, I mean, how many weddings does this guy go to? He's always at parties. Everybody clearly wants Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, there. He must have been such a joyful, good guy to be with. They all want him there. Jesus, whenever you see him in crowds, is spending time with people, talking to them about grace and truth, loving them, befriending them, showing compassion on them. We also see it in one-on-ones, whether it's an adulterous Samaritan woman that we see in John 4 who rocks up and sits at the well with him, or whether it's a rogue tax collector in Luke 19 called Zacchaeus, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He spends time with all the people that society has said, oh, don't spend any time with them. Jesus is like, right, well, they're my, they're my field then. They're the people I do want to spend time with. Why? Because they're going to hell. They're cut off from God. They are enemies of God. Somebody's got to tell them. But all they have to do is call on the name of Jesus Christ. But how can they call on one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? Who's going to tell them? Jesus was basically saying, well, I'm going to go tell them. Who's going to tell them now? Who's going to tell your neighbors and in your communities? Folks, we must. We've got to tell them. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my historical heroes, said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies And if they would perish, then let them do so with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Don't you love that? If people are going to go to hell, then let it be with our arms wrapped around their waists. Let it be with our energies being expended on their lives. Let them completely reject it before we give up. If they're going to go to hell, if they are going to spend their whole lives as enemies of God, then would we wrap our arms as a local church around their ankles, pleading with them not to? That's what Jesus did. And just as he sent the disciples, he's now sent us. We then see the gospel's privilege in verse 15b. It simply says this, As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What a wonderful scene to close with. See, in Old Testament times when the nation's men were in battle and they won, what they would do is they would send a young man, a runner on ahead, to inform the nation that they left behind that victory has been made sure. 
Can you imagine what it would be like for the families to be looking? They would know be standing there with the wives and children looking. Are they coming back? How wonderful it would have been not to see a small band of defeated people, but a runner with a spring in his step, declaring the good news that the battle has been won. Victory has been made sure, and they're coming home. My friends, there is no greater battle ever been won than the battle that has been won by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gloried on the cross. He paraded Satan in front of everybody as a defeated loser. Jesus Christ won the battle. He rose again victorious. And what he's helping to see is you now have the ability to have beautiful feet. It is our feet now, having claimed the victory in Jesus Christ, that need to run into our communities, need to run into our schools, need to run into our workplaces with a spring in our step, declaring of the victory of Jesus Christ. The glorious gospel which changes lives. The glorious gospel which is the power of God unto salvation of all who would believe. Folks, would we have beautiful feet, don't you think? Would it be said of this local church, you know what? Sovereign Grace Church, it's not for them, it's not about getting people from other churches. You know what? They are just evangelistic. They want to have beautiful feet. I want that said about us because I want it to be true. I want us to have beautiful feet. I want us to brandish the gospel and know it and love it so that we can enjoy grace and detect legalism. I want us to brandish the gospel so that we can apply it so that lives can be changed. And that is the power of the gospel. But I also want us to brandish it and take it out and proclaim it. Because there's people out there that don't know it. And we want to be telling them. I want to close them with a story of a guy by the name of John Harper. John Harper was on the Titanic on the night it went down. And I remember hearing his story some time ago. And in the midst of so many stories that didn't surface out of that disaster, his did. And I hope that you're provoked about it in the same way I am. John Harper was born to a pair of solid Christian parents on May the 29th, 1872. It was on the last Sunday of March, 1886, when he was 13 years old, that he received Jesus as the Lord of his life. He began to preach about four years later, at the ripe old age of 17, by going down to the streets of his village and pouring out his soul in earnest entreaty for men to be reconciled to God. As John Harper's life unfolded, one thing was apparent. He was consumed by the word of God. When asked by various ministers what his doctrine consisted of, he was known to reply, the word of God. After five or six years of toiling on street corners, preaching the gospel and working in the mill during the day, Harper was taken by Reverend E.A. Carter of Baptist Pioneer Mission in London, England. This set Harper free to devote his whole time and energy to the work so dear to his heart. Soon John Harper started his own church in September of 1896 now known as Harper Memorial Church. This church, which John Harper had started with just 25 members, had grown to over 500 members when he left 13 years later. During this time, he had gotten married, but was shortly thereafter widowed. However brief the marriage, though, God did bless John Harper with a, ma- with a beautiful little girl named Annie Jessie Nina Harper. It was on the night of April the 14th, 1912, that the RMS Titanic sailed swiftly on the bitterly cold ocean waters, heading unknowingly into the pages of history. On board this luxury ocean liner were many rich and famous people. At the time of the ship's launch, it was the world's largest man-made movable object. At 11.40 p.m. on that fateful night, an iceberg scraped the ship's starboard side, showering the deck with ice and ripping over five 
watertight compartments the sea poured in. On board the ship that night was John Harper and his much-beloved six-year-old Nina. According to documented reports, as soon as it was apparent that the ship was going to sink, John Harper immediately took his daughter to a lifeboat. It is reasonable to assume that this widowed preacher could have easily gotten on board, board this boat to safety. However, it never seems to have crossed his mind. He bent down and kissed his precious little girl. Looking into her eyes, he told her that she, she would see him again someday. The flares going off in the dark sky above reflected the tears on his face as he turned and headed towards the crowd of desperate humanity on the sinking ocean liner. As the rear of the huge ship began to lurch upwards, it was reported that Harper was seen making his way up the deck, yelling, women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. It was only minutes later that the Titanic began to rumble deep within. Most people thought it was an explosion. Actually, the huge slip was literally, chip was literally breaking in half. At this point, many people jumped off the decks and into the icy, dark waters below. John Harper was one of these people. That night, 1,528 people went into the frigid waters. John Harper was seen swimming frantically to people in the water, leading them to Jesus before the hypothermia became fatal. Mr. Harper swam up to one young man who had climbed up on a piece of debris. Reverend Harper asked him, between breaths, Are you saved? The young man replied that he was not. Harper then tried to lead him to Christ, only to have the young man who was near shock reply, No. John Harper then took off his life jacket and threw it to the man and said, Here then, you need this more than I do, and swam away to other people. A few minutes later, Harper swam back to the young man and succeeded in leading him to salvation. Of the 1,528 people that went into the water that night, six were rescued by the lifeboats. One of them was this young man on the debris. Four years later, as a survivor's meeting, this young man stood up and in tears recounted how that after Harper led him to Christ, Mr. Harper tried to swim back to help other people. Yet because of the intense cold, had grown too weak to swim. His last words before going into the frigid waters were, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Does Hollywood remember this man? No. But no matter. This servant of God did what he had to do. While other people were trying to buy their way onto the lifeboats, selfishly trying to save their own lives, John Harper gave his life so that others could be saved. John Harper was truly the hero of the Titanic. My prayer is that this local church would be filled with men and women like John Harper. That we would brandish the gospel and be so consumed by what Jesus Christ has done for us that we would spend our lives swimming to others in our communities, swimming to others in our workplaces, in our lives, telling them of the glories of Jesus Christ. They are all on the Titanic and don't even realize it. But we realize it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Don't write anybody off. Everybody can be affected by the glories of the gospel. In a moment, as we attach the sticky bomb, in a moment, God can boom it. And their lives can be transformed. Folks, we've got to tell them. It's our privilege. So would our lives reflect the beautiful feet of those who bring good news? Would that be our story? And as it is, would all glory go to the Lord? Let's pray. And if the band could come up, that would be great.
Papa, why don't we stand together as we pray? Lord, I thank you for the glorious gospel. It is amazing to consider that the gospel, seeming so strange and seeming so foolish in many ways as you talk about it, nonetheless carries within it the the power of God, your power to change lives. Lord, would you help us to see our communities the way you do? Would you help us to weep over our communities like you do? Would you help us to care for them like you do? Lord, help us to brandish the gospel and help us to be ready to declare it. Would we be friends of sinners? And within the context of our friendships, would we be ready and waiting to tell people about you? Lord, help us to do this by your glorious grace. Amen.